Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to switch back to the world of literature, and I'm going to discuss a couple of poems by Carl Sandburg. They're shorter poems, and uh, so I'm going to read them in, in their entirety and uh, discuss them. Uh, but before I get into that, I wanted to give a little bit of uh, background. Um, when people, most people think of poetry, they think of it being about highborn people, um, you know, kings and queens, knights, or rich people, famous people, um, exceptionally beautiful people. Uh, there's always this idea that these are the people that have always been the subject of poetry, and you're not going to find anything much about anyone else. Well, prior to the Romantic period, which we talked about in an earlier podcast, this would have been true. You would have only heard about highborn people unless um, the poem was supposed to be uh, comical. Uh, Lowborn people usually only entered the world of literature through the realm of comedy. Um, But as you get into the Romantic period, that changes. The main characters kind of become more middle class and regular people. Uh, Part of this has to do with the fact that there's a shift in the audience. You know, more middle class and uh, working people are able to afford books. Uh, Books have become cheaper. So there's a a new audience and a new shift towards them. Now, the British romantics go quite a ways, but the American romantics, particularly Walt Whitman, go much, much farther. Um, Whitman, in fact... Uh, is often considered a pre-modernist poet, even though he's solidly in the American Romantic tradition, uh, mainly because Whitman has very uh, experimental structure for the time period. He doesn't use meter and rhyme or you know any of those things. He uses more of the flows and patterns of speech. And so Whitman, when you read him, if you didn't know his time period, and you had been reading a lot more of the modernist writers, you might be tempted to put Whitman into the modernist period. Now, this is why he's so influential. A lot of the modernists kind of take a lot of style after Whitman. And one of those in particular is uh, Carl Sandburg, uh, a Chicago poet. Uh, People may have read one or two of his poems, probably Chicago and Fog. Those two two seem to be the only ones that are frequently anthologized. Uh, Most of his other stuff you'll never read unless you actually go find books by Carl Sandburg and read them or search for his poetry online. Um, But if you're looking in straight anthologies, they pretty much put those two in and leave it at that. Um, And this doesn't really do justice to the range of Sandberg. Uh, Sandberg, in a lot of ways, is a 20th century Whitman. Um, He sort of goes outside of the boundaries of where most other poets go. And part of that has to do with the fact that Sandberg is also out of this modernist tradition and would have been influenced by the labor movements of the time. Sandberg was actually a uh, part of the Socialist uh, Party for a little while. Um, and, you know, writers that were uh, just prior to his coming out uh, were people like Upton Sinclair, who wrote The Jungle, which we had discussed in, also in an earlier podcast. Um, you know, Sinclair really tried to bring out sort of the plight of the workers in Chicago. Um, you can see Sandberg also being another 
him being another influence for Sandberg is Sandberg is very much considered a Chicago poet. Most of his themes are in Chicago, uh, in that area, in that section of the country. Uh, he lived in Illinois and Michigan and, you know, a large part of his life. So he wrote a lot of things from that background. So he had a lot of experience uh, seeing the working classes, working with the working classes. He was also a journalist, which is how he supported himself for a lot of his life. So he was writing articles. <clears throat> uh, one of the uh, series of articles that he wrote uh, was actually um, a series of articles about the race riots in Chicago in 1919. Now, he would actually started writing the articles about race relations prior to that, uh, prior to the, the riots breaking out. Um, and then they sort of broke out as he was writing. And part of what he was doing in that series was trying to kind of show, you know, what was going on? Why is it? Why are these riots happening? Because they had happened in other places, and he kind of went in and interviewed people the same way that Sinclair did. You know, people in the African American community, and actually got their stories. You know, what what are the things that are, um, you know, making your life terrible? And so he wrote about segregation and lynching and uh, unequal pay and you know, all of these other things, police brutality, you know, basically a lot of the issues that are still uh, unfortunately being uh, protested against in the African-American, with the African-American community today. Um, so in a lot of ways, his relevance never left. And he was actually, for his series of articles, uh, the first white male to be awarded and uh, given an award by the NAACP. Um, who saw him as really kind of, uh, instead of victim blaming and saying, oh, these you know people are doing these bad things and no one knows why, he kind of wrote these articles that said, no, these are the legitimate grievances of these people. These are the things that they want addressed. This riot didn't just, you know, these riots aren't just happening for no reason. Um, uh, Sandberg also later worked with the Kennedy and Johnson administrations on uh, civil rights issues and uh, labor issues. Um, but I want to get into uh, reading the two poems that I picked um, and discussing them. Uh, the first one that I picked is called uh, I Am the, Mo the People, the Mob. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm just going to go ahead and read it all the way through, and then I'll start discussing it. Uh, I Am the People, the Mob, the Crowd, the Mass. Do you know all of the great work of the world is done through me? I am the working man, the inventor, the maker of world's food and clothes. I am the audience that witnesses history. The Napoleons come from me and the Lincolns. They die and then I send forth more Napoleons and Lincolns. I am the seed ground. I am a prairie that will stand for much plowing. Terrible storms pass over me. I forget. The best of me is sucked out and wasted. I forget. Everything but death comes to me and makes me work and give up what I have, and I forget. Sometimes I growl, shake myself, and spatter a few red drops for history to remember. Then I forget. When I, the people, learn to remember, when I, the people, use the lessons of yesterday and no longer forget who robbed me last year, who played me for a fool, then there will be no speaker in all the world say the name, the people, with any fleck of sneer in his voice, or any far-off smile of derision. The mob, the crowd, 
the Mass will arrive then. So this is one of his poems that comes out about 1910 to 1919 in that era. And it's very much about the regular people, the working people, and how they're kind of uh, manipulated and uh, mistreated over and over again by those people in power. Um, and he kind of gives the fact that, you know, the people seem to forget and forgive and move on, and then it keeps happening again and again. Uh, and his call at the end is sort of, we can't forget the past, we can't forget the things that have been done. Um, we need to kind of hold those things uh, to accountability. Uh, and only when that happens will the people actually be respected, will they actually, you know, not be stepped on all the time. <clears throat> so you can very much see this is not a uh, a poem about people who are doing well. This is very much a poem about uh, workers, and particularly, you know, industrial workers who have been, you know, under this time period, uh, they're working 10, 12-hour days. There's no unions. There's no safety standards. You know, a lot of these things that we talked about in the jungle, you know, these are the conditions he's talking about. And, you know, politicians come along and they make promises to the people. We're going to do this for you. We're going to do this. And then none of the promises are kept and the people just keep getting stepped on. And so one of the things that he keeps emphasizing is the need for the people to kind of be the people. You know, he doesn't say this one group or that one group. Um, he kind of lumps all of the people together. And this is kind of an early call for unity, the fact that things will never get better until we can unify. And he, he actually worked a lot in the labor movements with trying to uh, with the successful labor movements, which actually had the black workers and the right, the white workers striking together. Um, they would actually be in solidarity. And when they were, they would actually make advances. Uh, it was only when the workers were played off against each other, when you got to play, when the, when the bosses played, you know, black against white and vice versa, that the um, workers were able to be easily squashed. Now, as I talked about in the jungle and Sinclair brought up, you know, there was a tradition in uh, the industrial cities, especially Chicago, to bring in different waves of immigrants to always displace the workers they have in order to keep unions from becoming strong um, and to keep the groups from working together because the work the workers would see this other group of people as these are people who are here to steal our jobs <clears throat> one of the things that happened uh, post-civil war was a lot of the uh, former slaves were kind of lured to the north to work in the factories uh, and the reason this was done was that the owners of the factories were trying to break the strikes uh, that the work their workers were having because their workers were again working under horrible conditions, and so this is one of the things that kind of fuels this uh, continuation of racism, this playing them against each other. You know, we came in and um, had these jobs, and now these other people are coming in and taking these jobs away from us. Uh, so he's bringing up a lot of issues that really start to become much more widely recognized as the 20th century and 21st century go on. But you, you know, you have to 
go back and realize he's talking about this in 1910 to 1919, which is way before most of these movements start to really get any traction. Uh, it isn't until much later. Okay, the other poem I want to go into and read is a poem called Mammy, and this is uh, a, a little bit later of his, but um, still fairly early. Mammy beat her head against the bars of a little Indiana town and dreamed of romance and big things off somewhere the way the railroad trains all ran. She could see the smoke of the engines get lost down where the streaks of steel flashed in the sun and where the newspapers came in on the morning mail. She knew there was a big Chicago far off where all the trains ran. She got tired of the barbershop boys and the post office chatter and the church gossip and the old pieces the band played on the 4th of July and on Decoration Day. And she sobbed at her fate and beat her head against the bars and was going to kill herself. When the thought came to her that if she was going to die, she might as well die struggling for a clutch of romance among the streets of Chicago. She has a job now at $6 a week in the basement of the Boston store. And even now she beats her head against the bars in the same old way and wonders if there's a bigger place the railroads run to from Chicago where maybe there is romance and big things and real dreams that never go smash. Okay, <clears throat> this again is sort of uh, taking on uh, things from the perspective of uh, someone who's not wealthy, someone who will never be wealthy, um, but someone who kind of has dreams of a better life. And in this particular case, a woman who has dreams of a better life, um, who, you know, doesn't want to be trapped in the small town where, you know, her fate is to become uh, somebody's wife and to have a bunch of children and to, you know, never get the things that she's dreamed of having. Um, and so she strikes out for Chicago and ends up working long hours in basically a, a basement sweatshop. Uh, and, you know, while she's there, she's wondering, well, maybe there's someplace else where things are better. Now, even though this was written in the beginning part of the 20th century, I think most people can see some really close connections to the way things are today. You know, look at the lives that people are shown on TV. Now, if you watch television and movies, um, there are uh, rich people doing all kinds of glamorous and glorious things. Uh, you see somebody who has a breakup in their relationship, so they, their, you know, spouse leaves them, so they go to Paris or Italy and, you know, get their lives together and just have this wonderful adventure. Well, this is something that kind of fills the head of most people. You know, while you're working in your job that you hate, um, while you're being told that you can't do this, you can't have that, you can't be this, um, you know, your, your head is also being filled with the ideas of, I want these things. Uh, and for a woman, this was much uh, more out of uh, the realm of possibility back then than it is now. Uh, now there are some possibilities and there are chances people can make it, even though they're very rare still. Uh, back then, there wasn't really much that a woman could expect um, unless she married well. Uh, most of the laws were against her. Uh, most of the labor laws that did exist, what few did exist, 
um, didn't protect women at all. Um, most of the ideas of just from society that a woman should even want these things uh, were, were frowned on, on on a social level. You know, when people looked at this, they thought, what do you, you know, stop being a silly child and having all of these crazy dreams. You're a woman, you can't do these things. You can't have these things and you shouldn't want these things. You know, there was still very much the idea that there was something wrong with a woman if she wanted anything other than to be the perfect housewife. And really the door doesn't start to open at all for women uh, and, and the women's movement doesn't really get much momentum until World War II. Now, there was uh, mo movements for women to gain the right to vote um, prior to that, but really the idea of that a woman can go out into the world and make it into the, in, in the workplace like a man didn't exist until World War II, and it was preached that women couldn't do that. Well, when World War II came along, this country had no choice. All of the men who were able-bodied were sent overseas to fight in the war. And somebody had to work in the factories and the steel mills and, you know, build the planes and build the tanks and make the bullets and the guns and all of these things and the, and the clothing. And so the uh, industrial jobs, uh, the clerical jobs, the factory worker jobs, all of these things um, were taken over by women. And prior to World War II, women were always, they, men were always able to tell women, well, you're a girl, you can't do these things. You're just a, you're just a woman, women can't do a man's job. Well, during World War II, they did the jobs of men, and they did them well. Um, they, you know, they had very high productivity, they made very high quality products, they excelled in every field that they were Put into. And so for the women who wanted more, um, this really sort of gives them the first taste of now men can no longer say, you can't do this, you're just a girl, because we did it, we were successful. Um, so a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, during this time period this poem was written, the stirrings uh, in, in people who were aware that there were a lot of women who wanted more out of life, even though that wasn't the mainstream view. And this is one of the things that literary writers are often sort of ahead of the rest of the world in. Um, things that literary writers are uh, trying to put forth, ideas they're trying to put forth, are sometimes decades ahead of where the rest of society is. You know, the rest of society is stuck in the way things have always been, and literary writers are looking at things and going, why? Why does it have to be stuck this way? What about this? Why can't, you know, she find happiness and, and do these things? So Sandberg in his poetry is really interesting. I highly recommend his poetry. Um, he's one of the people who kind of gives a voice to a lot of people who you didn't really hear about. Um, you know, even when the other writers are writing about the middle class, they still tend to be writing about the upper middle class. Um, but there are a few writers like Sandberg, um, Sinclair, uh, Upton Sinclair, and um, Steinbeck, who are kind of giving you the other side of uh, society, sort of the people that everyone else forgets. Okay, 
I'm going to break this episode off for now. I hope all of you are doing well and staying safe, and I will talk to you again soon.